If you're able, would you remain standing? And as we continue our series, we're turning to Psalm 119, verse 17. This is the Gimel section. This letter originally represented a camel. Um, it's no longer the case. <laughs> it was a very skinny camel. Psalm 119, verse 17, reading through verse 24. Take heed to the word of our Lord. Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes, that I may see wondrous things from your law. I am a stranger in the, the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. My soul breaks with longing for your judgments at all times. You rebuke the proud, the cursed, who stray from your commandments. Remove from me the reproach and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Princes also sit and speak against me, but your servant meditates on your statutes. Your testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray together. Father, indeed, we pray that you'd open our eyes to see wonderful things concerning you in this portion of your word. For asking Jesus' name, we all say, Amen. Please be seated. The more I read this psalm, the more convicting it becomes uh, to me. Uh, it, I don't have this ardor, I don't have this fervor, I don't have this zeal that the psalmist has for the Word of God and the God of the Word. So I find my heart often cold to the Word of God. I find myself reading it and not really living it or even um, intaking it, as it were. So I'm praying that as we go through this psalm for the next couple of months, that our hearts will grow warmer to the Word of God. Uh, the uh, uh, John Stott used to talk about living on the shadow of the cross that we might catch some of the blazes that come from the cross. So my prayer is that our hearts, all of our hearts, will be ablaze with the bright fire of passion for the Word of God as we consider this psalm. And... Uh, praying that the Lord would do a mighty work in all of us, that we might love Him and follow Him faithfully. This week, I was very tempted to break the stanza into smaller portions. As a matter of fact, I wanted to do a sermon per verse, uh, following a little bit of Thomas Manton's um, lead who preached 190 sermons on Psalm 119. Well, I resisted the temptation, and we're not going to do that. And this sermon is not going to be the combination of eight sermons either. It will be one regular length, ordinary sermon. I don't know if you noticed, but as we read this stanza, there is a certain sadness and discouragement that uh, comes across. The psalmist seems to be more aware of the trials of life. What gave birth to this psalm was the sufferings of his life. You can see that throughout this book, this psalm. But in the Gimel and the Dallas portion, the, the two portions for today, we find that sadness more present. In this section, we find 
the discouragement because of circumstances of life. And then in the next section that we're going to consider this afternoon, we see the psalmist really entering a, a depressive state because of inner turmoils of his own heart. But there's a, there's a, a sadness, there's an awareness of the trials of life in this portion, the point of, that uh, Derek Kidner, which is an Old Testament scholar, labeled this section of the psalm uh, solace in loneliness, that the, the psalmist is looking for solace in his loneliness. As far as horizontal relationships, as far as relationship with other people, he is alone. He's left only with his relationship with God. And yet, he's not in despair. In his discouragement, he runs to the Lord. And the theme for this stanza is humility and dependence in the midst of discouragement. And that's what we're going to use to outline our sermon today. Humility and dependence in the midst of discouragement. That's what the psalmist is teaching us here. This is what he did in his own life. We can see that he's discouraged. If you look at verse 17, you can see that on his own, he didn't think he could keep on living. He says, Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. On his own, he thought that life, he couldn't keep on. He needed God to help him. He's discouraged. In verse 19, the psalmist feels out of place in the world. In the first half of verse 19, he says, I'm a stranger in the earth. He felt that God was distanced from him. In verse 19, the second half, he prays that God will not hide his commandments from him. In verse 20, his soul was broken or crushed with the longing for the judgments of God. You don't long for something that's close to you. You long for something that is far away. You long for something that you're missing, that's distant from you. So he felt that God was distant. He was discouraged. He was experiencing reproach and contempt. For his obedience to the Lord. In verse 20, he says, My soul breaks, and with, uh, sorry, in verse 21, your rebuke is actually 22. We'll get there. Remove from me approach, reproach and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. You know, we all face reproach and contempt in our lives, but it gets to the point that sometimes it just grinds us down. It just, it just gets tiring of being swimming against the flow the entire time, of having to fight against everything that's going on. And that can be very discouraging. That's what the psalmist found himself. He also had powerful people saying evil and untrue things about him. Look at verse 23. Princes also sit and speak against me. The idea of sitting here is sitting in the place of public Judgment. These are the rulers of the city, and they're sitting in judgment in the official place and declaring evil and untrue things about the psalmist. They're leading the whole community and speaking evil against them, and he was discouraged because of that. All these discouraging things, all these hard things were happening because he was faithful to the Word of God and the God of the Word. Life wasn't going that smoothly, even though he was faithful to his God and to the word of his God. I know if you experience that, but times of discouragement tend to drive us away from God. Uh, naturally, I think that's how we react to times of discouragement. When we're discouraged, we pull away from, from God, we pull away from his word, we pull, we pull away from his people. We tend to stop praying, 
So discouragement can be a, a lethal uh, occasion, can be lethal to our souls. And this man, by God's good grace, resists the temptation to pull away from God. And instead, in his discouragement, he leans into God. Instead of running away, he runs to God. He leans into God and holds on tightly to him. For the longest time, I didn't understand why the cool pastors used the word lean into something. And, uh, you know, I never endeavor to be cool, so I usually use the word lean. But it makes sense here. The idea of leaning into something is trusting. It is just putting a weight on it, knowing that it's going to bear you up. And that's what this this psalmist does. In his discouragement, he leans into God and holds on tightly to him. And he depends on God in humility. In his discouragement, he reacts in, he responds in humility. If you, see, you see that humility in verse 17, where he prays that God would deal with him according to his grace. He says, Lord, deal with me bountifully, your servant. He's not asking for a reward. He's not saying, Lord, look how good I was. Look at all the ways I've obeyed you. He, no, he's not asking for any of that. He recognizes that his obedience is worth nothing. He's asking God to deal with him bountifully, beyond any, any measure of deserving, he's throwing himself upon God in humility, asking God, deal with me according to your grace. And he knows in his humility that he's all but a servant from the Lord. He could rightly have addressed God as his father. He could have said that he, uh, he is a, a covenant member of God's people. And yet he addresses God As being the servant of God, he says that in verse 17. He also says that in verse 23, where he says, Princes also sit and speak against me, but your servant meditates on your statutes. This word serve is interesting. In the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, the word that it used is the word doulos. And I'm just mentioning that word because that was the Apostle Paul's favorite term to identify himself. Adulos was a servant who was a slave, a bond servant, a servant that was bought at a price, a servant that had no rights, a servant who had no inheritance. And that's how, in his humility, this psalmist comes to the Lord. Isn't that our identity as well, slaves, those bought with a price? Remember what the, the price of your the purchase of your soul was? the very blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, for you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. So he, in his humility, approaches God as a servant, as a slave, one who doesn't deserve anything from God. He knows that he's not able to understand the scriptures apart from the help of God. In verse 18 says, Lord, I can't do it. On my own, I can't do it. I'm not going to stand here and say that I can figure out what your word says on my own. Please, Lord, open my eyes that I might see wonderful things in your word concerning you. In his humility, he understands that one must approach the God, the word of God, with a humble heart. In verse 21, he says, You rebuke the proud, the cursed, who stray from your commandments. He understood that the Lord had nothing to do with the proud. The Lord rebukes the proud, the arrogant, 
According to this verse, the proud is the one who strays from the commands of God. The proud is the opposite of the servant. The proud is the cursed, while the humble is the blessed in verses 1 and 2. And he comes knowing that, that, Lord, I'm not the proud. I'm not straying from your word. Deal with me bountifully. I'm discouraged. I have nothing to offer you. I come to you in humility. And the Lord delights in humility. In Isaiah 57, verse 15, it says this, For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. The exalted guy, the high and lofty, and lofty God, the eternal God, the other than the created beings God, that is what it means to be holy, is not looking for the mighty. He's not looking for the proud. He's not looking for those who are sure of themselves. He's looking for the humble to be associated with him. Those who have a contrite and humble spirit like the psalmist does. In his discouragement, he didn't rebel against God, but in humility, he comes to God. The Lord hates the proud. In Hebrews 6, in Proverbs 6, 16, says that there are six things that he hates, yet seven. And the first one on the list is a proud look or haughty look. Humility is needed when we are discouraged because it lets us see that we need someone other than ourselves to pull us out of discouragement. If we're discouraged and proud, we're just going to remain discouraged. Humility allows us to see that we need somebody else outside of ourselves to pull us out of that discouragement. Humility allows us to cast our anxieties upon the Lord because we know He cares for us, as the Holy Spirit says through the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. Humility allows us to open ourselves to our brothers and sisters for them to help us see if there is any sin that's deceiving us, as Hebrews 3, 12, and 13 tell us. Humility allows us to consider others more significant than ourselves and look at their interests instead of ours, as Paul says in Philippians 2, 3, and 4. You know, a way to get out of discouragement is to start thinking how we can serve other people. And humility, take the gaze off of us and put on other people. The trials of life can, be, can discourage us, and they often do. If you're living a life anywhere, there's often discouragement in it. When we're discouraged with life, we must respond in humble dependence on the Word of God and the God of the Word. And we see that's exactly what this psalmist does. In his humility, he depends, he relies on the God of the Bible and the Bible of God. In verse 17, he recognizes, he depends, he relies on God to the point that he knows that life is not even possible apart from the grace of God. Again, verse 17 says, Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live. The psalmist is certain, certain that apart from God, Dealing bountifully with him, he will not be able to live. He depends on the Lord for life itself. Are you there? The psalmist depends on the Lord for life itself. Are you there? Are you relying on God for life itself? Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. 
He says, I am the way, the life, and the truth. John says about Jesus, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus says about himself, for God's love the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then Jesus asks Martha and you a crucial question. Do you believe this? The psalmist depends on the Lord for life itself. Are you doing the same? Is Jesus Christ your life? Is he the one that has brought you back from spiritual death and will bring you back to physical life at his coming? Do you depend on God for life like the psalmist did? The psalmist also depends on God in order to understand the word of God. In verse 18, he says, Open my eyes that I might see wondrous things from your law. He depends on God himself to understand the Bible. No one can really see the true wonders of God's word unless God enlightens or illuminates us to see what is there. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 14 through 18 says that the Jews read Moses with a veil over their eyes and they can't understand it. But we who are in Christ have that veil removed and that's because of that that we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as the Spirit of the Lord does. When God opens our eyes to see what is in His Word, it is like scales fall out of our eyes as it happened to Saul after that encounter with the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. I don't know what your experience is, but that was exactly my experience. And as I started reading the Bible as an unbeliever, makes no, made no sense to me. It was boring. I was a chemical engineer. Uh, I had done chemical engineering in college. I was a math guy. I was a science guy. I was a, a biology proved everything. And the moment the Lord changed my heart, the truth of creation from the scriptures, the truth of how bad I am from Romans 3, my need of, 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 of Savior, it wasn't a progressive, it was not progressive. It was like, and it was there. And that's what the Lord does. And that's why we rely on Him to see the truth of His Word. When God enlightens us, our eyes are open like Balaam's eyes were open to see the angel of the Lord of the sword ready to kill him. When God shows us the wonders of his word, our eyes are open like Elisha's servant who was super worried about God's enemy. And all of a sudden the Lord opens his eyes and see the armies, the host of heaven surrounding him, the greater armies than any army on earth. And I want you to notice from verse 18 that the wonderful things are already there. The wonderful things are here already, people. They are there. We are praying that we would be able to see them. They are here already. We come to the Bible with the expectation of seeing wonderful things because they are there. 
the psalmist, Spurgeon said, had not half of the Bible, but he prized it more than some man prized the whole. And he came to it knowing that there are this full of wonders and asking the Lord to let him see what is there. Do you value the Bible in this way? And do you come with the expectation to see something wonderful in it because the Holy Spirit opened your eyes to see it? And I want you to pay attention. It's wonderful in the literal sense. Full of wonder. Not neat. Not interesting. Not things that I like. But full of wonder. Remember, what's another word that means exactly as the same thing as wonderful, but we don't use in that sense very often. Awful. Awful. Those are the same words. Full of awe. And we see that because our God is awful in the old use of that. He is awesome. And we read the Bible as a, God opens our eyes and we we are all struck from what is there. And the psalmist, in his reliance on God, cannot stand the idea of not understanding the wonderful things in the Word of God. In verse 19, the second half says, Do not hide your commandments from me. Now, hiding here is not that the psalmist was afraid that he was not going to have a copy of the Bible with him. It's not that he had bad memory and can't find his pocket Bible. That's not what he's praying about. Hiding here is that he, God would not keep the meaning of the word from him. That God would, would not, that he was afraid that he would not understand the word of God. And that, would, that, that caused him to be in, in despair because he can't live without knowing the word of God. He so craves to see the wonderful things that are in the word of God that the thought of not being able to understand it breaks or crushes his soul. He longs for it in verse 20, where he says, My soul breaks with longing for your judgments at all times. And as in his discouragement, as it comes to God in humility, he depends on God, he relies on God to vindicate him before his enemies. Look at verse 22. It says, Remove from me reproach and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. He realized that God would do it. Whatever it is that's being brought against him, whatever accusations, God will take care of it. Either in this life or in the life to come, God will vindicate his people. And that's true of us as well. We don't have to worry about what's being said about us. We don't have to worry about any false charges. We, we need to worry about true things that are being said about us. Not about any uh, uh, reproach or any contempt that's brought to us because God will vindicate us, if not in this life, in the life to come. And he depends on the Lord even in the midst of the most severe persecution. Verse 23 says, Princes also sit and speak against me, but your servant meditates on your statutes. In times of pressure, we tend to forget to look at the word of God. The psalmist says, that during those times you meditate on the decrees of God. Instead of looking less to the Word of God and the God of the Word in times of pressure, he looks 
to them more. So we have here rulers and princes, the civil magistrates, those that are leaders in the community speaking evil of him. He finds solace and comfort in meditating in the word of God. Spurgeon says the best answer to accusing princes is the word of a justifying king. What does he mean by that? When false accusations are brought against you and you're brought down, the best way to deal with that is by hearing the words of the king, not the prince, not the little rulers of the community, but the king who justified you in Jesus Christ. Why does he do that? Why does the psalmist do all these things? Because he delights in the word of God and the God of the word. Look at verse 24. Your testimonies are also are my delight and my counselors. He delighted in the testimonies in the word of God. He followed the word of God. And as we come to the end, I wanted to make three final applications. One of the, the first one is this. One of the reasons life here is difficult is that this age, this world is not our home. Psalmist says that in verse 19, I am a stranger in the earth. The apostle Peter says the same thing when he says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims. Spurgeon again says he pleads as a servant and a pilgrim who growingly finds himself to be a stranger in an enemy's country. Why is this life discouraging? Because we're not citizens of this world. The more we grow in Christ, the more we feel out of place in this world. We are living the life to come now, and that creates dissonance with the world around us. And because of that, we are mocked, we are scorned, we're looked upon with contempt, as it says in verse 22. We're mocked for our commitment to God. We're, we're made fun for our commitment to God, fun of for our commitment to God. We are put down. We're called unintelligent. We're called simpletons for our commitment to God. But guess what? It is difficult and hard, but we are in good company when that happens. Matthew 27 says, When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on, on him, and led him away to be crucified. Believer, when you were mocked, Find a way to rejoice because you are suffering the sufferings of your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This mocking is for righteousness' sake. Hopefully, we're not doing things that are mockable in and of themselves, but we're suffering, being mocked, being uh, experienced contempt because of righteousness' sake. So that's the first thing I wanted to I wanted to remember. Life in this world is hard because this is not our home. We are from the age to come. Uh, um, Jonathan Lehman in his book, Let the Nations Rage, uh, gives this, this illustration, says that we are all time travelers. Every Christian is a time traveler. Somebody who traveled from the age to come to now. And is endeavoring to live according to the age to come. So it creates all kinds of trouble with the timeline, right? If you watch any... any uh, time traveling show, there's always a problem with the timeline. And 
we're creating this problem. That's why life can be discouraging. But secondly, remember this, the unbeliever can't understand why we don't run to what the world has to offer. The unbelievers around us do not understand why we don't run to what the world has to offer. In verse 22, the psalmist says, Remove from me reproach and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Though we can have superficial relationships with unbelievers, there is no deep connecting point between a believer and an unbeliever. If you're willing, do you have unbelieving immediate family, like parents, siblings? Raise your hand. I do. Okay. How is your relationship with them? Is that deep and meaningful and full of common ground and you're able to proceed in life with a loss of agreement? That's not how it is with my parents. With my parents, the conversation cannot go any deeper than an inch because the differences are so deep that almost beyond the weather, we can't really talk about much. And that's true of unbelievers and believers in general. We live in two different ages to the point that the Apostle Paul says, they, the unbelievers, think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. We're mocked because we don't run with them And they can't even understand why is it that we don't do that. Thirdly, the psalmist is consumed with understanding and obeying the word of God. In verse 20, it says, My soul breaks with longing for your judgments at all times. He understands that he was made to glorify and enjoy God. And it's not a fleeting desire. It is present all the time. And it is how every Christian should feel. Verse 20 must be every Christian's testimony, a longing for the Word of God. It's very much like what Peter what Paul says concerning Christ. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, Paul says, What things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ, yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord. What is it that Paul's pursuing Christ and the knowledge of Christ and the knowledge of Christ's word and the knowledge of Christ's commands and the knowledge of Christ's person. And to do that, he leaves everything behind for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. That's the desire of every Christian. If that's not you where you are, look to Christ. If your desire is not to know Christ more, if your desire is not to pursue Him, counting all things loss, examine yourself to see if you are in Christ. Brothers and sisters, the Lord is so good to us. He has given us His Word. So we can know him. This portion of Psalm 119 shows us that in times of discouragement, we respond in humility, we respond in humility and dependence in the Lord by his grace. And as we do that, he'll pull us out of the miry pit, he'll pull us upon, put us upon a rock, 
and he'll give us a new song. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. We thank you that you have opened our eyes to see great things concerning you in it. Help us to be awestruck by all that your word teaches us. And help us to pursue Christ with every ounce of our being. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.